Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible or uh, don't know where yours is, you can find it on the, in the pew in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that one when you leave today. We would love for that to be yours. John chapter 6, our scripture reading today is just a few verses. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the, the, the God the Father has set the seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for his gift to us. I wonder, have you ever seen a miracle? We describe miracles in various different ways. For example, um, football season is nearly upon us, so you might say, hey, the Browns won a game. It's a miracle. Or we could throw my Colts in there and say it's even more of a miracle if they win. Or you could say this morning, hey, the kids made it to church on time, and I didn't lose my sanity in the process. It is a miracle. Or just last night on social media, I saw a video of a, of a guy who was uh, kind of holding his McDonald's bag in his lap, and he said, this is why you pray before meals. And so he prays, and out of the bag, he pulls Chick-fil-A, and you say, it's a miracle. Uh, you know, my, my grandpa, he saw a miracle once. Um, he went to the doctor uh, for a procedure, and the doctor was, uh, was, was checking it all out, and my grandpa asked him, hey, doc, why will I be able to play the piano after this? And the doctor says, well, I don't see why not, sure. And my grandpa says, well, that's great. I was never able to before. He said, it's a miracle. We all long to see miracles. We all delight ourselves in the signs and the wonders and the miraculous, and we get fascinated by them. How much better do we delight in the miracles if they make our lives easier in the process? They make our lives a little better, a little easier along the way. We delight in miracles like this. And it's the same spot the crowds were in in our text this morning. The crowds were fascinated by the miracles. They were fascinated by the signs and the wonders that they saw Jesus performing, especially because he had given them food to eat. Before DoorDash was ever a thing, Jesus here is showing up with bread and fish from heaven. They say, this is amazing. And the crowd say, we want more of this. Please give us some more. But what the crowds needed to hear from Jesus is that the signs are intended to point them to something greater. The, the, the crowds needed to see that the signs were only bearing witness to a greater reality, that it wasn't the bread on the mountainside, this miraculous sign that they most desperately needed. What they most needed is Jesus himself. And I think that's exactly what you and I most need to hear this morning as well. We can get fascinated by the miraculous, we can get fascinated by the signs and the wonders, but miss the fact that they are driving us to Jesus, to see him as the true bread from heaven. And every single one in this room has seen greater miracles than these crowds saw when they saw Jesus feed the 5,000 or walk upon the water, because every person in this room has seen two miracles, one of a sinner brought from death to life in Christ Jesus and the other of that sinner kept in faith till the last day. Many of you have experienced that miracle personally for yourself. Others of you know someone who has, but there are two great miracles that the Lord performs that are greater than all others that he does, and one is to save sinners from death to life, and the other is to keep sinners until the last day. And those are the miracles that Jesus wants us to see. Those are the miracles that Jesus wants us to prize most of all. And he wants these signs and these wonders to drive us to see that what we need most desperately is Jesus himself. The main point of our text this morning is that we need Jesus more than anything else. 
and it is the sovereign power and pleasure of God to satisfy us forever in him. I'll repeat that. The main point of our text this morning is that we need Jesus more than anything else. And it is the sovereign power and pleasure of God to satisfy us forever in him. And we see that played out in our text in several different ways. First, we see that there is a kind of sight that is not really sight. Then we see that there is a kind of bread that is not really bread. And then we see that there is a kind of work that is not really work. First, we see the sight that isn't sight. We see that there is a way of seeing things that is actually not seeing them as they are intended. And this is where the crowds are at. This is where we find the crowds to be. To the previous day, Jesus had fed them from bread from heaven. It was amazing. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet of miraculous bread, and so they want some more. And so they wake up the next day, and they look around, and they say, wait, 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 wait. Jesus didn't get in the boat with the disciples, so where is he? And somehow they found out Jesus is on the other side of the sea at Capernaum. And so what did they do? They go looking for Jesus. They want to find Jesus. Why? Because they want more bread. They want another meal. When they found him on the other side of the sea, verse 25 tells us, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, I would love for Jesus to answer them something like this. Well, I walked here across the sea. But he doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus simply rebukes them. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, they're asking a relatively simple question. Okay, Rabbi, when did you get here? But instead, he knows what they're really after is they want more food. And so he says, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs. You're seeking me because you're hungry. What the crowds want is more bread. They liked it. These are people who are always thinking with their stomachs. Now, you know, think about how often you are thinking about, what, you know, what's my next meal look like? So you got up this morning, and you had breakfast. And then, like a hobbit, you say, well, then what about second breakfast? And now, right now, this moment, you are thinking about, what am I going to have for lunch? We're always thinking about that next meal. It's the same thing that the crowds are doing here. Okay, Jesus, we had that food yesterday, but what about today? We are hungry again. They looked no further than their own bellies. They felt no deeper hunger than their need for their next meal. But Jesus continues. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus knows that these people are seeking him only because they want food. He knows that they, didn't actually, they don't actually believe in him, and so he tells them that their sight, they saw the signs. He says, you actually didn't see the signs, because the signs are intended to point them to the authority of Jesus. But the, the people are caught up with the physical food so much that they have missed the spiritual food. They have, they're so caught up in the food that perishes, they have missed the food that lasts forever. Jesus says, if you really believed who I was, if you really saw that sign, that sign was supposed to point you to my divine authority to satisfy your deeper hunger. They'd missed it. They'd seen the sign without seeing the sign. If they had really seen, they would have come looking to Jesus for the food that lasts for an eternity. It is Jesus alone who can offer it. It is Jesus alone who bears the seal of his Father. 
These signs and miracles are done to bear witness to his authority. And you think about how, uh, especially in older days, but even still today, some, that sometimes a letter would be stamped with a seal. So a, a king sends a letter and stamps it with his seal, and that letter then bears the authority of the king. Jesus says, I bear the seal of my father. He comes with divine authority, and he performs signs intending the people to see him and believe in him. But they've missed it. There is a kind of sight that is not sight. These people are not seeking Jesus for anything spiritual or eternal. They are seeking him for food. They wanted to meet their hunger, provide their next meal. And it is possible to become so preoccupied with the selfish, consumeristic concerns of the world that you miss what God has done and is doing to meet the greater spiritual needs. To be sure, these people are working hard and striving toward what they're doing. Jesus doesn't deny that they are working, nor does he rebuke them for seeking food or life. These are not bad pursuits, but he does drive them to say, you should be spending your time striving and working toward the thing that actually lasts and that matters. Maybe you can resonate with these crowds because you are working hard to build your life or your career, or your family, or your dreams, or your reputation, and you are seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in all of these things, or any of these things. And maybe even along the way, you turn to Jesus because you think he will help you get those things in a better way. So where the crowds were, they were working hard, they were striving after things, and they were even okay pursuing Jesus to get some of them, but Jesus wants to expose in them that they aren't really seeing him for who he really is, and they aren't really trusting in him with true faith. He, he brings this up, and he says, don't you want to work for something that lasts? And that question resonates with so many of us, doesn't it? That you want to work for something that ultimately matters, that has significance, and you get tired of the, the, the seemingly ordinary menial tasks that don't seem to have any larger significance. You want to do something that will outlast you. You want to do something that is great and grand, that has weight and significance to it. And Jesus is driving out with the crowds. Don't you want the same thing? You're spending all your time working for the things that perish. Why not spend your time working for the things that are eternal? They have a short-sighted view on life. So the crowds ask him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, so notice what the crowds do here. Okay, so Jesus, they come to Jesus because they want a sign of bread. They want some more bread. So Jesus then says, the only reason you're seeking me is because you want some more bread. And so they say, okay, Jesus, well, prove to us you're the Messiah by giving us more bread. See, they, 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 they've missed it. They, they don't get it. There seems that there was a messianic expectation that the Messiah, when he came, would provide his people manna like had been given in the wilderness. So they're thinking, well, Jesus, why don't you prove to us that you really are the Messiah? Why don't you give us bread just like Moses gave us bread in the wilderness? So they say, well, won't you give us some food to eat? And Jesus says, I already did yesterday. And they say, well, that was yesterday. What about today? This is never enough. They're never really satisfied with this provision. See, we can so quickly forget what Jesus has done for us when we focus on, well, then what else are you going to do for me today? The Christian life is one of gratitude, 
because we know that Jesus has already given us all we could ever need or ask for in himself. He is not withholding from us. Jesus wants them to see. He has already given them bread, lasting bread, by giving them himself, but they've missed it. The Christian knows that this life is one of gratitude because he has already provided for everything we could need in Christ. But when we begin to doubt that, and when our desires for more become like storm clouds that block out the sun of his provision, then all of a sudden we begin to grumble against the Lord. It's the same thing Israel did against Moses in the wilderness, and it's the same thing that these people in our text do against Jesus. They begin to grumble against him because they forgot his provision. They forgot what he had already given to them, and all they could focus on was, I want more, I need more, I need more. See, there are plenty of good things that we can pray for and should pray for. And we should ask the Lord to give us these desires, to give us these good things. But may it never be said that we begin to grumble against the Lord, forgetting what he has already given us in Christ. That we never get to the point where we are those people who can never be satisfied. Because as we will see, Jesus has already given us more than we could ever have dreamed to ask in himself. See, the crowds are only looking to Jesus to give them their next meal. But what they needed from him is the bread that he, only he can give them. Not the physical bread that came on the mountain, but the bread of life who came down from heaven. What they need is a kind of bread that is not really bread. It is the bread of life. See, the people demand a sign like the manna in the wilderness. But Jesus says to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to them, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He makes the same claim later in our passage in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. There are traditionally seven I am statements that Jesus records in the Gospel of John. As we saw last week, there's more than that. But there's seven traditional I am statements, and this is the first of them. I am the bread of life. It's an amazing promise. So people think at first he's talking about the physical bread. Just like in chapter 2, they thought he was talking about the physical temple. Or in chapter 3, they thought he was talking about physical birth. Or in chapter 4, they thought he was talking about physical water. So too, here in chapter 6, do they think he's talking about physical bread. They're missing the point. Jesus is driving it that he himself is the bread of life they need. And these verses have massive implications for our lives as Christians. Because first, these verses teach us that our deepest hunger and thirst must be for Jesus above all else. We should hunger and thirst for Jesus more than we hunger and thirst for anything else in the world. And this was where the crowds had gone wrong. They were aware of their physical hunger, but they did not know of their spiritual hunger. They knew they needed physical food. They didn't realize a deeper need for spiritual food. They knew their bellies needed to be filled. They didn't know their soul needed to be filled. 
And so these verses are, help, are, are meant to help us see that our greatest need, our deepest need is for Jesus, and we should hunger for him more than for anything else. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This kind of hunger that comes to Jesus is through faith in him. Faith that prizes Jesus above all else. Faith that hungers for Jesus more than anything else. This kind of faith is a deeper love for Jesus, a deeper hunger for Jesus, a deeper satisfaction in Jesus than in all else. You know, Augustine famously taught that uh, the uh, true faith is a reordering of our loves. See, he said that, that when you come to Jesus, it's not like you begin loving only when you come to Jesus. We're always loving something, but what happens is in our sin, we love the wrong things. Our loves get disordered and turned all wrong. And so what happens when we come to Christ is our loves get rightly ordered so that now, right in our sin, we don't love the things we should love, and we love the things we shouldn't love. And so when we come to Christ, all of a sudden, those loves get reordered in our lives, and so now we begin to love in the right priority with Jesus Christ first and foremost. And I think Augustine is right, and, and, and he applies it to what we love. Could I also say that applies to what we hunger for and desire? Well, all of a sudden, the desires of our heart begin to be turned around and reordered rightly, that we begin to hunger for Jesus more than for anything else. There's a second observation, and it's this, that not only is our deepest hunger for Jesus, but that hunger is fully satisfied in Jesus. This is a promise, that that hunger, that deep hunger, will be fully satisfied in Him. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says anyone who comes to him with this kind of faith is not only aware of their hunger for him, but also finds that hunger fully and finally satisfied in Christ. And you will never grow tired of this love. You will never need to go try out another restaurant just to mix things up a little bit. This is an all-you-can-eat buffet of delight in Christ for all of eternity. It will be fully satisfied in him. doesn't mean that the hunger and thirst for other things just goes away. Every one of us hungers for other things on a daily basis, some of them good, some of them bad. But all of those things are meant to point you to Jesus. Whether you have much or you have little, what you can come to know is that Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy your soul. And not only is he the one we most deeply hunger for, and not only is our hunger fully satisfied in him, that hunger is also fully satisfied forever. Forever. It is finally, it's lasting. It will never run out. This meal will always be available. There is a never-ending supply of riches that flows from Jesus to you that is enjoyed in fellowship with him, not just now for a moment, but for an eternity. And this is in contrast with the manna that came down from heaven. See, the, the crowds are like, Jesus, why don't you give us manna like Moses did? And Jesus says, first of all, it wasn't Moses who gave that to you. It was my father. But second of all, where are all those people who ate the manna now? They're dead. What you need is bread that lasts, that will not grow stale. A microphone that doesn't fall off. That's what you need. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. See, the crowds, they were too short-sighted. All they could focus on was their next meal, but Jesus says they need to have an eternal perspective. 
And it is so easy for all of us to get caught up in the scope of what's happening today, right now, the pleasures of the world today, that we miss eternity in view. You know, I've told our elders and our staff in various conversations in recent months that I think one of the great discipleship challenges that churches and Christians face in the Western culture today is that our age is one of instant gratification and immediate payoff. We do whatever feels best to us right now. And in that kind of culture, how do we help Christians say, willingly say no to certain pleasures now in light of greater pleasures forever? See, all of us are just doing whatever we think is going to make us happy today. But one author, I like the way he says it, says Christians are those who can do what will make them happy 10,000 years from now, not just today. We live with eternity in view. We live with a grander scheme in mind. You will live forever and be fully satisfied in Christ. So that's the promise here in our text. And there is nothing that you will miss out on here on earth that will not be completely worth it when you see Jesus. There is no amount of food or drink or sex or companionship or family or reputation or job or anything else that could even compare to the joy of being fully satisfied in Christ forever. You can go without any of that, and Jesus would still be enough for you. That's what this text is getting at. He is what you hunger for most deeply, and that hunger is only fully and finally found in him. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. What we need most is Jesus. And that helps us make sense of some of the verses in our text that seem a little odd at first, like Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And, and you say, okay, well, is Jesus a vampire and are, Christ, are Christians cannibals? And the answer to both questions is certainly not. Jesus here is talking about a kind of bread that isn't bread. He's talking about himself in a spiritual sense. He is saying there is no union with Jesus. There is no life in Christ except through his body and his blood given for his people. There is no eternal life that is found except through the redeeming work of Jesus. His body given up unto death. His blood shed for the sins of his people to redeem them and to purchase them. There is no life found except through him. And some interpreters take this as referring to communion, to the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. Um, I don't think this text is directly about that. I think John Calvin is right in his interpretation, as he often is. He said that this text is not about the Lord's Supper, and yet Jesus intended that this supper, when he institutes the bread and the cup, would be a seal and a confirmation of this sermon. In fact, Calvin concludes, and I think he's right, that the reason John doesn't bring up the bread and the cup in his upper room discourse is because of this sermon already given to us. Because the bread and the cup point to the very realities Jesus is getting at here, that his body will be offered up unto death, his blood will be shed for the redemption of his people. And the bread and the cup symbolize that deeper reality. Jesus is the bread who satisfies. All other bread will not keep you alive forever. The manna that was given in the wilderness was wonderful, but those Israelites died out. 
It kept them alive a little bit longer, but not forever. The same was true of the miraculous bread feeding the 5,000. It satisfied their bellies, but here we are the very next day, and they're hungry again. See, every other stream in life is not capable of giving you eternal life. There is only one path to heaven, and it is through the blood of Jesus, the Messiah. The old hymn was right when it says that God leads his children along, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Whatever path your life takes you, there is only one path to heaven, and it is through the blood of Jesus. He did not come just to give bread, but to be bread. He did not come just to break bread with his disciples, but to have his body broken for his disciples. There is no eternal life, no lasting satisfaction, no ultimate fulfillment to be found anywhere outside of Jesus. And the only way to come to Jesus is through his redeeming blood shed for sinners. So a natural response as we consider these things is, is to ask, well, then what must I do to be saved? If this, if this is all true, then what must I do in response to this? It's actually pretty similar to what the crowds had already asked Jesus. After Jesus says they should work not for the things that are temporal but eternal, they ask him in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's a good question, an important question to ask. If we are supposed to live with eternity in mind, if we are supposed to delight ourselves in Jesus, if we are supposed to, 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 to be believing all that this text says, then what must we do? And Jesus answers this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You say, what, what's the work? It's to believe. It's faith. It's a kind of work that isn't really work. See, the crowds have this sight that isn't really sight. Then Jesus knows that what they need is bread that isn't really bread. They need himself. And how does that, how do they come in possession of that through a work that isn't really work? It's to believe in him. It's through faith. There is no amount of work that you could do to earn your way to Jesus, to earn this bread. There is no way you could come to Jesus except by faith. This theme of belief shows up all throughout our text. We saw it in verse 29 just there, but also verse 35. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, verse 36, Jesus says, the problem is you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Do you see this theme running throughout our text? That is all about faith. It's through belief in Jesus. It's not about what we do. It's not about what strength we can muster up. It's not about the work that we perform. It's about the faith that we place in Christ. And this is faith that feasts on him as our true bread and comes to him to satisfy our hunger. This is a work that is not really work. But it should inform the things that we work for. It should inform the things that we strive for. Because every one of us is looking for satisfaction in something. Every one of us eats meals that are set before us. Some of you, if you need to eat, you will indulge on junk food and drink a bunch of Mountain Dew. Others of you will have a five-course steak dinner. But regardless, when you're hungry, you're going to eat something. And all of us have spread before us these, these meals that we can come to and indulge. And only one of them, spiritually, will satisfy us. Only one of them will lead to ultimate, lasting joy and delight. And that is Christ, the bread of life. 
Jesus says, listen, don't spend your time so preoccupied with the things that will perish and don't last. Spend your time preoccupied with the things that are eternal. What should be the driving passion of their souls, Jesus is saying, is him, is eternal things. Eternity should matter more than whatever feels right and best right now. We should be striving after him as the all-consuming passion of our souls. It's not easy, nor should it be easy. In fact, after hearing this teaching, the disciples and the crowds concluded this is a very hard saying. And it says many of the crowds left him. We'll see that next week. The response of the crowds upon hearing this was not, oh, wow, it's just faith. It's, they say, this is a hard saying. We're going to turn away and leave. Because what Jesus is demanding is a kind of faith that trusts him enough to stake the entirety of our lives on him and let him change us. See, following Jesus is not some casual thing that you can add on to your life without having really to change your life, your ambitions, your dreams, your goals, your actions, your words. Maybe some of you are familiar with the board game Ticket to Ride. It's basically a game where you're trying to chart paths across the country. When I say it that way, it probably doesn't sound as exciting, um, but it's a fun game. And uh, uh, basically what you're doing is you'll, you'll draw these cards that are kind of giving you additional paths that you can take, and they give you extra points in the end. And, and the way I play that game is this. I'm going to keep drawing those cards until I get the paths that basically line up already with where I'd already been going. Because if I draw a path as in the middle of the game, I am not going to change the path I'm on. I'm just going to keep drawing until I find one that fits where I'm already heading. And some people approach faith in Jesus much like that. Well, if Jesus can kind of come alongside my life and maybe help me get a few extra points along the way, make it a little bit easier on the road, sure, I'll come to him, but I don't want him to change the entire course of my life. I don't want to redirect right now. I don't want those dreams to change. But true faith in Jesus comes to him, takes him seriously enough to change what we work for, to change what we love, to change what we desire, to change how we treat others, to change what we prioritize, to change our focus from the temporal things to the eternal things. And you say, well, well, well how is that possible? That's too difficult. How, how, how is that possible? And here's the good news, friend, is you can't do it. God does it. In our text, Jesus wants us to see that all of this that we've been talking about, everything we've been seeing is a sovereign work of God. This is not man's work. Salvation is not man's work. It's God's work. It's God who does all of it. And we see that in our text. God calls you to believe, not on the basis of what you have already done, but on the basis of what he has done. This is not work on your part. It's work on his part. He's the one who does it. Notice he says in verse 44, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And all of a sudden, the unbelief of the crowds becomes far clearer and more dire. Because it's not just that they don't believe, it's that they won't believe unless God intervenes. And such is the case of every human being you come into contact with. Such is the case of every human being sitting in this room right now, you and me included, is that in our sin, we will not come to the Lord unless he intervenes. Jesus says no one can come unless the Father draws them. I think Edwards was right when Edwards said that uh, all men are free to run after whatever they desire most. The problem is, in our sin, we desire the wrong things. 
What we desire is sin. And we cannot desire God. We cannot seek God. We cannot come to God unless God first draws us. But see, friends, the Bible never brings this up as an excuse to man's sin, nor does it bring it up as a matter for debate. It brings it up as a cause for worship, because against the dark backdrop of the depravity of man shines forth the glory of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because notice verse 37. It's a massively significant verse. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, in this verse, we have the sum and the substance of all theology. And we read this. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Notice first that God the Father gives a particular people to his Son. All the Father gives to me. The Father has given to Jesus a people from eternity past, chosen for his Son, a people, the church. And Christian, you need to know that if you are in Christ, before God even formed the world, you were his gift to his son. His church presented to Jesus. He says, here you go, my son. And notice the order here. It's crucial to notice the order. The father gives them to Jesus, and then they come to him. It's not the other way around. Sometimes we would like it to be the other way around. Whoever comes to, whoever comes to God, those are the people the father will give to Jesus. No, no, no. The, the text says, all the father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. What takes place first is the Father's gift, His initiative. And this gift was the church. When He says all, it can't mean every single person in the world, because all those who are given to Jesus will come to Jesus and will be kept by Jesus. So if this means all the people of the world, it has to conclude that all those people are saved. This means all of God's elect, all of God's chosen people are given to Christ, and those are the ones for whom Christ died. And the basis of these people coming to Jesus are, the, are his death and his resurrection for sinners, which he accomplished for his people. Those who are given by the Father to Jesus will come to Jesus, guaranteed. There is a definite atonement, a particular redemption, that Jesus did not just die to make salvation possible, but to make it certain for his people. The cross did not just open the door to make salvation possible. The cross actually saves God's people. Jesus dies for all who are given to him, and all who are given to him are brought to him, drawn by God. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Jesus says, every single person given by the Father to the Son will be drawn to the Son. And no one can resist that. Now, for, for a moment, they might, but this grace is ultimately irresistible. God's people will be brought to faith by his grace. And all who come to Jesus, so notice, all the Father gives to Jesus are drawn to Jesus, and all who come to Jesus will be kept by Jesus. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's actually the wrong kind of question to ask. Can a Christian lose his salvation? The better question to ask is, can Jesus lose a Christian? Will he forget about you? Will he allow you to slip through his fingers? Will he suddenly grow tired of you and flick you away? Can you manage to jump out of his hand? And the answer to all of those questions must be no. The Bible demands that the answer to that is no. 
Jesus says this in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. See, we could ask the question, is, is, is Jesus perfectly obedient to his father? And the answer must be, yes, Jesus perfectly obeys his father's will. And so Jesus says, all right, let me tell you what my father's will really is. This is the will of my father, that I should lose nothing he's given me. See, Christianity is not something where this loving Jesus just needs to placate this wrathful father. No, 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 you see the father's love, how deep the father's love for us. You see the father's love displayed here in that he chose for himself a people before he even made the world, and he gave them to his son, and he gave a mission to his son in sending him into the world, and here was the mission given by the father to the son. You go save them, and you keep them, and you bring them home, every last one of them. And for Jesus to lose a Christian would mean that Jesus has failed to be obedient to the Father's will. This is my Father's will, that I will lose none of that he's given to me. Jesus cannot disobey his Father. He cannot fail his Father's will, and he cannot lose a Christian. So, dear Christian, if you come to him by faith, true, genuine faith, he will never let you go. Doesn't mean that everybody who makes a profession of faith will be kept. The text doesn't tell us everyone who walked an aisle or prayed a prayer at some point in their life will be kept. It does say that everyone who believes in Jesus with this kind of saving faith that treasures him and feasts on him as the bread of life will be kept forever. Yes, there will be moments where you hunger for the things of the world more than for God, but Jesus will hold you fast even then. Yes, there will be moments where you stray away from him into sin, but he will hold you fast even then. Hear the words of Jesus. See, sometimes we get afraid. We say, well, well I, don't, I don't know. How will Jesus respond to me when I come to him? We get fearful that when we come to him, there'll be this big red light, and he'll say, none shall pass, like Gandalf. And Jesus says, this is why he tells us this in this text. He tells us, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. You do not need to be afraid upon coming to Jesus that suddenly he'll turn you away. He says, if you come to him, he will hold you fast. He will keep you. The reason this text is in the Bible is to tell you there is no reason you could ever come up with why Jesus will disown you because such a reason does not exist. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck you from his hand. Friends, union with Christ is a one-way ticket. There is no return trip. He will hold you fast. And all those who are kept by Jesus, notice there's a fourth aspect to this. All those who are kept by Jesus will be raised up by Jesus on the last day. All those he's keeping, he will raise to resurrection, eternal life. You saw this in verse 39. He will raise it up on the last day. It continues in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. All those given to Jesus by his Father, purchased by Jesus through his blood, come to Jesus by his grace, will be kept by Jesus until the day where he raises us up to live with him forever. That is a promise given to every one of his people. Just like Jesus has been raised from the dead, so too will we be. If you are a Christian, did you know that your 
resurrection from the dead one day is far more guaranteed even than you getting out of bed tomorrow morning. We tend to live like it's the opposite. Well, I know I'm going to get up tomorrow. I know tomorrow, here's all the things I'm going to do, but I hope that there's life after death. But the Bible says it's the opposite. There's coming a day where every single one of us, if the Lord tarries in his return, every single one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, from the strongest to the weakest, from the richest to the poorest, will be buried in the ground. But your resurrection hope is certain. That grave is a temporary residence. It's a rental. And that death has an expiration date because there will come a day where the Lord will thunder forth from heaven and the dead will be raised. Just like he cried out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And many have noted that the reason he has to say Lazarus is because if he just says, come out, his word has such power that all the dead will get up and walk out. And there will come a day where the Lord thunders from heaven, get up, and all the dead in Christ will rise with resurrection bodies just like our Lord. That day is certain. That hope is certain. Why? Because Jesus is keeping you for that day. And one day he will raise up all of his own to live forever with him. You need to see how the logic of John 6 is all connected. All these pieces fit together. Because your assurance of salvation is rooted in the sovereign power and pleasure of God to accomplish it. So in light of this, you can grumble against the Lord, or you can come and eat. There are those who tend to grumble about everything. You probably know them. Maybe they're sitting next to you. Just don't say that right now. You know what it's like to go to the restaurant and the meal is never enough? It's never good enough. They're never satisfied. There's always more grumbling, always more complaining. That's the response of the crowds here against Jesus. There's all this grumbling. It's never quite enough. But you notice when someone is truly starving and desperate and a meal is laid in front of them, they're probably not going to start grumbling about the food. They're going to come and eat. They're going to delight themselves in the food that's been presented to them. And when we know, desperately know, our hunger for Jesus, we're not going to grumble against him, but come to him and eat. The people, they grumble. They didn't know how this small town boy could claim to be the bread from heaven. They didn't understand what he meant when he said, eat my flesh. They had a hard time digesting the truth of what Jesus was saying. It's a grumbling from skepticism, confusion, and dislike of what Jesus had said. They grumbled, and they went away. There are meals that are spread before you right now on various tables that are beckoning you to come and to eat, and all of these meals are just like salt water to a man dying of thirst in the middle of the ocean. He sits on a raft, and he knows what he most needs is water, and he looks around, and all he sees around him is water, and he thinks, this will, this will quench my thirst, but it won't. It will only lead to death. And all around us, we see all these things that we think that will satisfy, that will fulfill the things that I'm longing toward. That will really give me pleasure and happiness, but it won't. It will only lead to death. The only road that leads to life is Jesus Christ. See, this is actually the same temptation that was offered to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, if you remember that story. The serpent slithers up to them, and he holds out a fruit, and he says, here, come here, take this and eat. And the serpent promises them that this food will satisfy them, it will make them happier, and it will give them more pleasure than God would. And so they took and they ate, and in doing so came death. But Jesus wants us to see that more than anything else, what we most need is him. And so to the crowds, Jesus reverses that statement from the serpent, and he walks out to the crowds and says, hey, here you go, take this and eat instead. 
He offers a better meal. And so the fruit given to them by the serpent in the garden, Jesus offers his body given to them to feast and delight our souls in for an eternity, to be fully and finally satisfied, never to hunger again, but to find our all in Jesus, our deepest delight in Jesus. And the confidence is that this bread of life is sweeter than sin, and he will keep all who come to him for eternity where we can rejoice in him. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet that will satisfy all of his people for all eternity. That's the hope of our text. See, the response of the crowds is simply, we want more signs. But the response of the Christians is to see the signs God has already given us, the greatest signs we could ever ask for or imagine, the sign of a man, a sinner, brought from death to life, and that sinner kept until the last day where he will be raised up again. That is the hope of Jesus the Christ, the bread of life. I think the song says it well. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, this assurance that you give to us that you will hold us fast, you will keep us until that day. Lord, I pray you would continue to be at work drawing people to yourself, bringing them to faith in Jesus, bringing them from death to life. Would you continue to do that miracle and would you continue to do the miracle of holding us, keeping us until that day? We thank you for our Lord Jesus and his words here to us in John 6, these words of life that are offered. May we not be like the crowds who turn away and grumble, but may we have the response of faith given to us by you. That we would see you and believe, that we would trust in Jesus as the bread of life and we would come and be satisfied forever. We ask this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.